Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Here in the United States, novel coronavirus infections set a single-day national record on Wednesday. And while for now it seems like deaths are not growing at the same pace as cases, it's clear that this virus is not contained and that this pandemic is far from over. Yet momentum behind a federal response seems to be fading. The task force is convening less often, federal funding to some test sites has been depleted, and President Trump has said that the country will not shut down again, even as some states have paused their reopening plans. On Tuesday, at a hearing on Capitol Hill, top federal health officials, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, warned that coronavirus spikes in more than a dozen states could worsen without new restrictions. In other areas of the country, we're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections, an increase in community spread. So now, months into this outbreak, where does the federal response stand? What steps are ongoing and are they working? Plus, how does the U.S. response compare to the virus response globally? What can we learn from countries who are seeing small-scale spikes and have plans to contain them? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, I talked to The Post's foreign affairs reporter, Rick Nowak, about the response in Europe and around the world and how public health leaders in those countries view the United States response. But first, I spoke to The Post's health policy reporter, Yasmin Abutaleb, about what that United States response looks like today, several months in and with surging cases in many parts of the country. Dr. Anthony Fauci this week sat down in front of Congress to answer questions about the virus and the federal response. What sort of picture did Fauci paint of where things stand in the U.S. right now in terms of the spread of the coronavirus? Fauci painted uh, quite a different picture than the one we've been hearing from Trump, from Pence, and from some political officials. Fauci said there was a disturbing surge of cases in some parts of the country, and he described it as a mixed bag. He said places like New York were getting much better, that social distancing and shutdown orders had seemed to help mitigate and slow the spread of the virus and that New York was coming much more under control. But then he said places like Florida, Texas, Arizona, other states were seeing a disturbing surge that was very concerning to him. And he also said that the U.S. is still in the first wave of the virus, that we can't even talk about a second wave yet because the U.S. is still in the first wave. We haven't gotten cases and deaths low enough to be out of it. And with the surge in some states, coronavirus infections actually set a single-day national record on Wednesday. So what do we know at this point about why we are seeing surges in case numbers? Well, we're seeing the surges in states that reopened and in many cases prematurely reopened. So the demographic of people who are getting infected now is is different than in the earlier days of the outbreak. You're seeing more young people get infected, which... Fauci and others have said is because people are going out. They're not observing social distancing measures as much. A lot of people don't consistently wear masks. And he actually, during the hearing on Tuesday, implored young people and healthy people to wear masks because even if they may not get very sick, they will still contribute to the outbreak and eventually get a a more vulnerable person sick. 
And what has the Trump administration, not Fauci and these other top health officials, but Trump himself and, and his advisors attributed the surges to? They're not really talking about the surges. So Vice President Pence was on Capitol Hill yesterday meeting with Senate Republicans, and he tried to sort of paint a different picture of what's happening. He told them, don't worry, it's only rising in three percent of counties in the country and only in 12 states. Those numbers don't align with Washington Post data. The Washington Post has some of its own data looking at hospitalizations and case increases. What we're seeing is that cases are increasing in more than 20 states and at least 5% of counties, if not more. So they've sought to paint a rosier picture of what's happening and tried to say, don't worry about it. And even though yesterday was a single day high, we didn't really hear anything from Trump or other top political officials about what that meant or what we should do now. Trump went to Oklahoma on Saturday and Oklahoma was setting single day records or seven day records just days ahead of when Trump visited on Saturday. Health officials in Oklahoma were basically begging him to not come and he came anyway. And then he went to Arizona this week just as Arizona was setting records. So he's visiting states that are reliably red or Arizona in this case is a swing state, but they're also states that are struggling and reaching hospital capacity and seeing very worrying signs of an outbreak there. So given the position from the administration and messaging from Trump, plus the fact that coronavirus does not seem to be going away, I want to assess what's actually happening then with the federal response now, several months into this. Back in March, the nation responded with these significant shutdowns and closures, in part to give the federal government time to develop some sort of coordinated response. And four months later, it's not really clear that we've seen that. So I want to go through the specifics with you. Let's start with the coronavirus task force. That's the task force led by Mike Pence. We haven't heard much from them lately. What are they up to? The task force is meeting far less frequently now, about once or twice a week. And we're actually not sure what they're discussing in those meetings. We're trying to find out if they've discussed the recent surge, if there's anything that there should be done about that. But as far as we can tell, at least externally, there doesn't seem to be some sort of strategy about what to do about the recent surge of cases before we were trying to find out if they were going to do anything or planning for a potential second wave in the fall. But now that honestly seems like we're missing the immediate danger, which is the surge that we see happening right now now. Officials have, have sort of sought to, to say that things are under control, things are better, they want people to go back out, they want to get the economy back up. So we're not really seeing the same sort of focus that we saw in mid-March and April where they were meeting every day, they were having briefings every day, the nation was shut down, there seemed to be a grasp of the seriousness of this. Now it seems like they still want people to feel safe being out. We know from Fauci's interviews and others that Trump is not meeting with public health officials very much anymore. So he seems much more politically focused and doesn't seem to be getting that public health message as much as he was before. And one piece of this that has been in the news from the beginning is testing. The U.S. stumbled on testing in the beginning of this crisis. That's been covered pretty extensively. But where do things stand now with testing in this country? Are we effectively testing all those who need to be tested? And what's the path on testing going forward looking like? Testing has definitely gotten a lot better over the last couple of months. The U.S. is now testing about 500,000 people a day, which is a huge improvement. We're still not at the point where every single person who should be tested is getting a test. Fauci and others have talked about the need to do surveillance testing, which means you don't only test people with symptoms, but you conduct tests sort of across the population to try to detect infections and outbreaks that you might not otherwise find. Right now, we're still mostly only testing people with symptoms or who, who feel they need a test. It's not nearly as restrained as it was before, but experts have said to safely reopen, we're going to need to be able to conduct millions of tests a day, and we're still not at that. 
part of what's been helping us reach the testing capacity that this country needs are these test sites where people can go and get tested for the virus in different parts of the country. The federal government initially helped to fund many of these sites, but there was some reporting this week that that will be changing. What's going on there? Yes, the government has helped fund a number of test sites around the country. They started setting these up in March and they set up test sites in retail centers or places that were convenient for people to go get testing. There have been concerns recently because that funding was set to expire and it was always sort of scheduled that the government would shift responsibility to local health leaders, local community leaders, but you're seeing them pull back funding in states that are seeing pretty big surges now. So Texas, for example, is setting records for the number of cases they're recording a day. The government recently pulled back funding for seven of the testing sites in Texas. And you actually saw John Cornyn, the Republican senator from Texas, ask the government yesterday to please not pull that funding yet to not add to the strain that Texas health officials and Texas state officials have to deal with. Trump administration officials said Wednesday that many of these testing locations were actually designed to end in May, that that was part of the plan and that these federal sites are no longer necessary now that there are expanded testing capacities in many locations. Even with that explanation, what does the pulling of federal funding effectively mean for these sites? In some cases, the sites shut down completely. In other cases, the plan was for the site to shift to be run by local and state officials. There aren't always the resources to do that. So sometimes it means the site just shuts down. Meanwhile, Trump told rally goers in Tulsa over the weekend that he had charged officials to slow the testing down. Is that true? Has Trump actually asked officials to slow down testing? We found no evidence that any officials have actually been asked to slow down testing at any point. In fact, Fauci, um, Robert Redfield, the CDC director, Steve Hahn, the FDA commissioner, and Brett Giroir, who was the testing czar for the administration for a couple of months, all testified under oath on Tuesday that they had never been asked or directed to slow down testing. They were asked directly and they all said no. And Fauci said, we've never been asked to do this. In fact, we're, we're increasing testing. And both Fauci and Giroir talked about the fact that they're actually trying to double the number of tests that are being conducted by the fall. So we have not found any evidence of that. We talked to some officials who were extremely frustrated by that comment because they've worked very hard to ramp up testing and to address criticisms that the administration has been slow. And for a long time, the president was actually really frustrated at at how heavily criticized he and the administration were for how slow they were on testing. Another area where the federal government is involved in the coronavirus response is the national stockpile of emergency medical supplies. Do you know if it's been replenished lately? Is there any sort of action the federal government has taken on the stockpile lately that you have any insight into? I know from talking to some federal officials that there has been work to try to make sure that they're they're better prepared for personal protective equipment if another wave were to come or if there's a surge. They put in orders in, in the winter and spring, in March and April. Some of those orders are just coming in. So the government is better prepared on things like ventilators. Hopefully states now will be better prepared on things like N95 masks. They sort of know what to prepare for. So I've heard from officials that there have been efforts to try to better stock the stockpile for the coming months. I don't know how well it's stocked or if there is enough to handle there's a massive surge in the fall. But we do know that from medical associations, there are still complaints that private doctor's offices, so not necessarily the people on the front lines of the pandemic, but people opening offices back up or dentists, that they're complaining that they're not always able to get the protective equipment they need. One other area that public officials had urged early on would be critical to mitigating this outbreak was contact tracing. How have funding and efforts around contact tracing evolved over the past few months? In the $3 trillion 
bill that Congress passed a couple of months ago, they appropriated $25 billion for testing and contact tracing. So states have gotten a lot of those funds, both for testing and contact tracing. The problem is with contact tracing, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to do with an outbreak of this size. Contact tracing is effective if you've got sort of small outbreaks or just cases here and there and you want to prevent it from spreading. But when you're recording more than 30,000 cases a day, that's a pretty difficult thing to do. And there's no state that has enough contact tracers to conduct it on that level. What about then in terms of a vaccine? Is the federal government still involved in the vaccine development process at this point, the process they've called Operation Warp Speed? How is that going? They're heavily involved in the vaccine process. The federal government is actually helping companies take on a lot of financial risk so that they can move through the vaccine development process faster. So normally the steps are sequential. The government is providing 14 vaccine candidates a lot of funding up front so that they can do these normally sequential steps simultaneously. The goal is to have a vaccine that's pretty widely available by the end of this year, January 2021. But we do know that they're heavily involved in that and taking a lot of steps to try to speed that up as much as they can. What has the president himself pushed for when it comes to vaccine development? What has his involvement been over time as this has gone on? The president's always pushed for a vaccine faster and often faster than is realistic. So the the president in, in meetings recently has said he wants a vaccine available by the fall. He wants it available before the end of the year. And I think an important thing to know is that before this vaccine, the fastest a vaccine has ever been developed from the early research stages to development and distribution is four years. So them trying to even do this in one year is an enormous historic effort. And extraordinarily ambitious. But we do know the president, we've heard he has a little bit more respect for how complicated the process can be now and why it takes so long, but he's definitely been impatient and wanted to speed that up as much as possible. What have I missed here? What are the other things the federal government is or isn't doing when it comes to the federal response to this pandemic four months in? I think there's a lot of frustration that the message that we're hearing from a lot of top officials, including from the president and the vice president, is that the country has mostly moved beyond this, uh, that we're pretty much through it. The president has said any outbreaks that sort of remain are embers of the virus that they can put out. And that's really not the reality on the ground. The fact that the U.S., right now is setting a single day record high for new infections is extremely concerning four months into the outbreak. If you look at other countries across the globe, most of them have been able to get the outbreak under control or somewhat under control. If you look at Italy, they're having fewer than 200 new cases a day. We recorded 36,000 new cases one day this week. I think there's a lot of frustration among experts, even among former administration officials, that the government is acting like they've moved past this, that they've beat this. We do know that at the health agency level, they are providing support to states. They are concerned about this, but it's not the message you're getting. They still want things to reopen. And I think that's really scary because we still haven't gotten this under control and we're not seeing a plan or some sort of coordinated national strategy for how to do that. Then my last question to you is, why has time not improved much about our federal response? Why are we still lacking that coordinated strategy when we've had theoretically several months to respond to this crisis? The U.S. is a really big country. Just to be fair, it is much harder to respond to an outbreak in the U.S. than it is in another country. The other thing to note is that the U.S. has an extremely decentralized health system. So you can't put in federal orders the same way you might be able to in another country. You know, it's state by state, locality by locality. And the other thing is, even though we had a shutdown for a few weeks, it was never really a full shutdown. Not everyone fully observed it. It wasn't especially strict. So it definitely did help control 
control the outbreak and help the worst from happening. We didn't see hospitals that were completely overrun or people dying in the streets like there was fear of at one point. But by the time we put the shutdown orders in place, the outbreak was already pretty out of control in the U.S. And then the shutdown orders weren't observed consistently across different states and areas. And then a lot of the country reopened prematurely. So we never took the steps as aggressively or as long as we needed to to get it under control. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. The U.S. isn't the only country seeing an increase in new cases. Australia, Germany, Portugal, and South Korea are among some of the countries who've seen spikes over the past week, despite having had early success containing the spread. And while these countries are seeing spikes, the flare-ups are comparatively small and tied to identifiable areas where governments can direct its containment efforts. I asked Washington Post's foreign affairs reporter Rick Nowak, who's based in Berlin, more about how these countries have been responding to the new cases and how their approach differs from what we've seen in the U.S. Well, all of them have been responding quite aggressively. Uh, Germany, for instance, this week was imposing a new regional lockdown after they were fighting uh, a major outbreak at a meat processing plant in northwestern Germany. Other countries like Australia have uh, shut down schools again, or Portugal has been cracking down on parties, for instance. They've brought back some of the rules that were in place in the earlier stage of the pandemic, which is certainly something that is common for all those countries that, that have been quite successful at fighting this pandemic, at least during the first wave. So let's focus on Germany, since that's where you are at the moment. How does Germany assess when and where to reopen? How does its reopening process work? Well, its reopening process is multi-layered. So one or two months ago, they started reopening shops of a certain size, then lowering the restrictions those stores are facing and really going back to to a degree of normal whilst keeping in place uh, rules on on face masks, for instance, and some other restrictions. What, What we've seen now is that some of those eased restrictions are being put back in place. And the reason for that is basically just a mathematical model. Before the reopening started, German leaders agreed on a maximum threshold of new cases per day, hospital occupancy or hospital capacity. And if a city or a region crosses that threshold, goes into a red zone. They they halt the, the reopening or they go back some steps, uh, for instance, close restaurants again, make it more difficult for people to leave, essentially, and, and go on vacation. So that's a big concern, certainly, that in regions where you're seeing those regional outbreaks, that could really easily spread by people going into other parts of Germany or even Europe. So has that approach been effective in containing these new spikes as Germany sees them? Are Germans compliant with that national policy to restrict regions when they hit these thresholds? Generally, it's worked quite well so far. So we haven't seen any major surge in infections. What we have seen are regional outbreaks that seem at this stage to be quite contained. But of course, 
there always is a political element to this. So, for instance, in northwestern Germany, authorities were accused in recent days of acting too slowly, delaying the reimposition of that regional lockdown. But when you compare it to a country like the United States, it's really not comparable because in the end, they did impose a lockdown. They took very aggressive measures. Certainly, there are voices here doubting whether that's needed. But what we saw German leaders do in the end was a very aggressive approach. And are some countries better equipped to have a very aggressive approach than the U.S. when it comes to containing these spikes? Why are some countries able to do this more successfully? Well, I think in Europe, we, we've seen quite a lot of attention being paid to scientists over the last few months. Scientists in the U.S. and in Europe I've spoken to very much described the European approach as quite distinct from the U.S. approach, which from the European perspective is seen as quite politicized. In Europe, decisions such as the thresholds for the reimpositions of, of lockdowns, for instance, they've been largely drafted or at least directed by, by scientists or politicians with scientific experience. And that really is, is a key difference that makes it easier for countries like Germany to walk some steps back when you see some of those regional outbreaks. What then are the key takeaways that the U.S. can learn from other countries? What can the U.S. perhaps adopt or what lessons can we draw from to help our containment measures be more effective here? For a lot of scientists here in Europe I've spoken to, the question really is whether the U.S. at this stage has given up. Um, the numbers in the U.S. are so high that it's quite difficult for a lot of European scientists to, at this point, give recommendations. A lot of this should have happened uh, months ago. Lockdowns should have been kept in place. One of the recommendations of European scientists for American leaders would be to, to go back uh, a few steps and to reimpose those lockdowns until numbers are at a level where you can actually impose or implement test and tracing strategies that are really not designed to fight large-scale outbreaks, but more of those like regional minor outbreaks we're now seeing in Germany and other places. So public health officials around the world that you've spoken with are generally surprised by what they've seen in the United States. They're very surprised. And a lot of them I spoke to, they're also quite angry because they don't understand how, you know, when, when you look at a chart of how cases evolved in the European Union and in the United States, you see the United States and, and the European Union sort of peaking at the same level uh, a few months ago. And and from there, the European Union has gone down dramatically in, in terms of cases. The U.S. has stayed at a very high level and is now surging again. So most scientists I've spoken to abroad here in Europe, but also in countries like New Zealand that don't have a lot of cases, there's a sense of disbelief <laughs> how this was allowed to happen. Many Americans seem reluctant to continue to adhere strictly to lockdowns across the board. Is this a uniquely American circumstance? Have other countries seen noncompliance or reluctance to have sort of unified faith in institutions and their recommendations? People here in, in Europe are also tired of this pandemic, of the rules that have come with it and the necessary changes this has brought with it. You've seen this in, in Portugal, where hundreds of people partied last weekend, clearly defying the rules. I, I think what is different in other countries is the level of politicization that has come with it. For instance, in Europe, wearing a mask is not a political statement. It is very much accepted, at least here in Germany and other countries, as a necessary response to this pandemic. 
Now, President Trump here has said that he will not shut down the country a second time. Now, again, how the president does or doesn't shut down the country is obviously not exactly under his purview in the U.S. as it often comes down to the local level and the state level. But he has said that he, quote, won't shut down the country a second time. He's not willing to have that happen here. So that's a pretty stark difference from what we're seeing in these targeted shutdowns across Europe, as we've talked about in other countries around the world. How has Trump's messaging around the spread of the virus differed from leaders of other countries? What does that difference look like? Of course, uh, there, there are differences between leaders in, in Europe, too. I think you can't really compare the, the response from uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who is a scientist herself or was a scientist before she became the German leader, and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's also, just like Trump, been accused of botching this pandemic and allowing cases to spike. But in countries like Germany, you have seen leaders generally listen to scientific advice, try to understand what it means and draft rules that reflected that scientific advice. And that is something from from a European perspective. It's difficult to see the scientific advice reflected in the current White House strategy, at least when you assume that we're looking at the same science. We've talked a lot about how the U.S. has fallen short of global expectations around our pandemic response. Are there any ways in which the U.S. has excelled? Are there things we've done right? There is still a lot of respect for U.S. research institutes and and leading virologists and, and experts in the field who in many ways have actually defined the responses of other countries. I I spoke to one member of parliament here in Germany who told me that a lot of the measures here in Germany that worked to keep virus numbers low, they were actually based on U.S. scientific research, which is something he said is quite striking because it appears that those recommendations or that research was not implemented or transformed into policy in the United States. How will the U.S. response to the coronavirus affect the global standing of American public health institutions? Does your reporting indicate that our response to this pandemic may change how the U.S. is perceived in the global health community over the long term? The researchers I spoke to said they didn't really expect the Trump administration to necessarily listen to scientists or base their strategy on scientific advice. But what they were really surprised about was how respected U.S. institutions like the CDC, for instance, offered quite a flawed response to this pandemic when you look at uh, the rollout of, of tests in the United States in the early stage of the, of the pandemic, for instance. And that is something quite a lot of them told me that is something that's probably going to cause some permanent or at least temporary damage to the CDC and other institutions. What a lot of people also said is that there, of course, is a major difference between research institutes such as as Harvard or or other major universities that really still shape the scientific debate around coronavirus and the measures needed to fight it. And the the U.S. institutions, such as the CDC, that have offered a very different kind of quality of response um, over the last few months. All right, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on.
This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you found this helpful or informative, please tell your friends, share it with someone. It means a lot to us. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnik, with logo art by Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.